filibuster receives sponsorship from the Ehrlich Law Office, discrimination, wage, and litigation solutions serving Northern Virginia and the District of Columbia. They handle employment issues including wrongful termination, wage disputes, discrimination, equal employment opportunity matters, and more. They also handle civil rights litigation, defamation, and general litigation. For a free consultation, visit EhrlichLawOffice.com slash filibuster. I'll just, I'll just pull out my Battlestar Galactica slang book and uh, use, use their curse words. Right. If we could curse in Chinese, we could get some Firefly um, references right. going. But right, but none of us can. I don't none think. Of us. If you know how to curse in Chinese, please teach us. Filibusterpodcast I, at gmail.com. I tried. I have a friend who speaks Mandarin, and uh, I insisted over a weekend of drinking that she teach me Mandarin. And then at the end of the weekend, when I didn't really know any Mandarin, I was upset with her. <laughs> not, Did not, you at least know some curse words in Mandarin so that you could be upset with her in Mandarin? No, I ended up walking away with ni hao, which is like the one Chinese word everyone knows, so it was completely useless. Even I know that one. Right. So I, I got literally, she, she tried to teach me how to order a beer, um, but that didn't take, and I think it was like a 30-second lesson. So what you're saying is she was a, a devoted teacher, clearly. Like you I know, said, it was a full weekend of drinking, so... Do you know more or less... It might have been my fault. I might have just wandered off. Do you know more or less Chinese than Han <laughs> Oh, certainly less by now, I would hope. I also hope that they didn't make him live near a cow. <laughs> he, it was a very important thing to him to not live near a cow here, so I hope that he hasn't found himself near a cow now, or living near a cow. I assume he can be near them, you know, but not just not at home. It's important it's not a, to be near a cow at home. He's a man of very particular tastes. Yes. <laughs> look, look, this is fine for work, but not, not at home. Come on. <laughs> hey, hey, welcome in. This is Filibuster, the Black and Red United podcast. I am your host, Adam Taylor. Joined, as always, by Ben Bromley and Jason Anderson. We are all from blackandredunited.com. That is where you can find us writing about DC United, MLS more generally, the U.S. men's national team, the U.S. women's national team, when the fancy strikes us, and lots more. Uh, Tonight, we are talking about the U.S. men's national team because they just finished not beating Trinidad and Tobago. They didn't lose, but they they didn't win. They drew uh, down uh, down on the island, so or one of the islands. I guess it's two islands, isn't it? Trinidad yes. and Tobago. Smart, Adam. We're going to talk about that, and I guess we'll probably talk about the the 6-1 romp over St. Vincent and the Grenadines. Uh, we'll, we'll start the show with that, or we'll, we'll do that in the first segment. We'll talk about a little bit of DC United news, and we will look at the four teams left in the MLS Cup playoffs, which sadly do not include DC United. Before we do anything, though, well, Ben... Th- well, three teams and one demonic possession. Yeah, that's fair. I think that is actually their corporate corporate entity. Like yeah. the, the type of corporation is demonic possession. Oh, yeah. So that works. Ben, what are you drinking? So my wife and I have created a, well, mostly her, have created a template of a drink that starts with amaretto and whipped cream vodka for your Sweet, sweeter than all sweetness should ever be needs. I don't like where this is going. I'm going to say it right now. 
You shouldn't. And um, <laughs> then you always put a cream, a, a, something with a creamy, with a creaminess to it, in as the last ingredient. Uh, normal choices are uh, regular cow's milk, coconut milk, things like that. But since the United States uh, men's national team decided not to give a frack today. I also decided not to give a frack, so I poured heavy whipping cream uh, into it instead. And how much of that is in there? Far too much. Probably a shot's worth. And so this is probably, what, a three-ounce drink? I probably put, I mean... Four, four ounce, five ounce? It's not big, I'm guessing. It's not, no. It's, it's, a, it's a low ball. And And... Do you have a name for this? The the original drink we we named after my wife, so it's called the Christie. Um, this version of it, though, we could just call it the Jurgen. I don't know. Uh, it doesn't seem particularly German in any way. Then again, but, at this point, neither does Jurgen. But it doesn't give a frack, and neither does Jurgen. Call it the bomb call pop. It, I was going to say, call it the helicopter pilot. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I like it. So, it looks like you're drinking a milkshake. Does it taste like you're drinking a milkshake? Yes, it does. Well, there's that anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's sweeter than anything has the right to ever be, like even ice cream or anything. So, if I get diabetes during this podcast, you have, we have no one to blame but Jurgen. Drunken diabetes, yeah. the best diabetes. Yeah. Yes. Can I tell- Jason. Well, can I can I first lead off with a brief drinking story about milkshakes? Of course you can. How can okay. you not? Um, so I had a friend that used to bartend on Sundays uh, downtown, and he would usually use his comp por- portion to just feed us as many drinks as he could for free. Um, so as a good friend should. Yes. No. He's he's a good guy. He might be listening. I don't know. Um, but uh, so we sat there drinking for a while. One day, and the whole rule was. He would use it to experiment because he wasn't a longtime bartender. So it, our rule was if he makes you something, you've got to drink it, and then you can ask about what it is. You have to trust him first, though. The trust was important. Um, so he starts making a milkshake, and it's you know it's obvious he's making a milkshake. There's ice cream. There's milk. There's a blender. Um, my one friend, Sean, is he's like, what's going on here? I was like, it's some kind of milkshake. And so Sean goes away, comes back, drinks it just like everyone else. Everyone's having a good old time. We start. We decided to leave. This is in Dupont. We decided to go to uh, the museums because that's what we like to do when we were really drunk. In during the day, was to go to the museums. Um, Sean starts complaining that he feels sick to his stomach, and we're like, "Well, what? What do you think it is? Is it just is your tolerance too low compared to the rest of us?" He said, "No, I think it was that milkshake." And we're like, no, "No, don't blame the milkshake. We all drank the milkshake. We're all fine. It's it's not uh, it's not the milkshake. It's you." And he's like, "Well, I'm lactose intolerant." So. He he misunderstood that it was an actual milkshake, I guess, and thought it was supposed to be something called a milkshake that did not actually have milk in it, when it actually had copious amount of dairy in it. So we had to, ended up having to get off the Metro one stop early so he could throw up in a trash can. And rather than support him uh, or, or look out for his well-being, we stood in a circle nearby, pointed and laughed, and directed other passersby to stop and join us in pointing and laughing at him. Um and by we, I mean me. That was me standing out further <laughs> to tell people, like, you have to laugh at this guy. He deserves this. Which he, <laughs> I stand by. He did. He, he got what he deserved. Anyway, um, I am drinking much, a much more simple <laughs> beverage than Ben. Uh, I have Evolution Brewing's uh, Lucky 7 uh, Porter. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty 
pretty high quality porter uh, evolutions out on the eastern shore. Um, there's nothing. It's not anything uh, outlandish or anything, but for the fall, it's it's a very good fall porter beer. It's I, I needed something uh, to so, something that's just like like solidly competent after watching the U.S. Uh, give up a goal to the St. Vincent and the Grenadines and then just sort of blandly do a very little uh, in tonight's game. So I went for something that, that this beer would have gotten a one nothing win over Trinidad. If this beer were converted into a soccer team, it would have done the job and gotten gotten three points that it should have gotten. That's what I'm getting at. That was not a tortured analogy in any way. No, no, it's fine. <laughs> Inher- it was an enhanced interrogation analogy. <laughs> and now it, it's everything is broken. I think we've already called an episode "Everything Is Broken." That's that's. This is the sequel. Yeah. Electric Boogaloo. Everything is broken to still broken. Uh, I am drinking uh, Brooklyn Lagers, or I guess it's it's Brooklyn Brewery's um, insulated dark lager. Uh, It's it's nice. It's it's not you know a porter uh, like you're drinking. It's it's a lager, but it's got some of that that darkness, that caramelly uh, kind of character to it. Is, it a, dunk, is it a Dunkelweiss? I, I don't believe so, no. I think okay. it's just a, a toasted dark lager. Okay. So with that, let's turn our attention... Speaking of German things... ...to the United States men's national team who got four points from their first two games in Group C of CONCACAF World Cup qualifying... Semi-final round, they beat St. Vincent and the Grenadines 6-1 to in St. Louis before heading to Trinidad and Tobago tonight. It's Tuesday as we record for a hopeless, I'm sorry, scoreless draw <laughs> down there. Rumors uh, heading into this game, this weekend of games, this international window, were that Jurgen Klinsmann had to get six points or his job would essentially be forfeit. There were a couple versions of this rumor. One was that the bare minimum was beating St. Vincent and the Grenadines and getting a draw at Trinidad and Tobago, which is exactly what happened. And one was that if he didn't win both games, he'd be he'd be gone. Knowing that Jurgen Klinsmann and the U.S. men's national team did not, in fact, win both games, is there any chance at all that Klinsmann is not the coach of the U.S. men's national team the next time they take the field? No. No, of course not. <laughs> okay, moving on. <laughs> Thanks, Sunil. Good, good, good job. Uh, let's talk about the game tonight. Jason, a lot of our listeners, and at least one of the three of us, he, he says, is raising his hand, weren't able to watch this game. Uh, so what did we miss, miss besides nothing? Yeah, not a not a whole lot. Um, a pretty bland game between uh, a Trinidad team that wanted to play a low block and then counter playing um, a lot through the air towards uh, um, Kenwin Jones um, using their speed down the wings, which they they definitely have that. Um, and the U.S. possessing a lot of the ball, completing a lot of passes. I've seen a lot of people. A lot, of, a lot of optimistic assessments pointing out that the U.S. completed 89% of their passes and had 63% of the possession on the road. Those figures sound really nice if you just say them in isolation, but when a team plays a low block and you have the talent advantage the U.S. has, 
they what they really point to is a low risk approach and a lot of lacking in ideas and lacking in people willing to say that they'll take the game on their back and make something happen. Um, you know it's not a great performance when Josie Altador is the most urgent and uh, um, intense player on the field and the, the most likely to, to create an assist, which uh, he had several good crosses, which is weird. Um, that's not really what he should be doing. But uh, that was it was that kind of game. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, and um, Giassi's artist has a lot of work to do as far as finishing. Um I did see some some stuff about the the rumored bid that uh, LA has for him being around three million bucks, and how if that's actually true, then the galaxy so should be high. yeah the galaxy should be enthusiastically completing that deal as we speak. Um, because if if whatever championship team that is watched the game tape, they're probably going to say, hey, um, so that three million is suddenly like two. Um, if by three million we mean three hundred thousand, can we bring him on trial maybe? Right. Um, not not a good outing for him as a striker in this one. Um, I guess looking for some positives, uh, it's kind of difficult to find. It's one of those games that was so uneventful, there aren't negatives or positives, which is in and of itself a negative when he, he your team is... I mean, you're, I mean, overall, the whole team, um, the U.S. should be winning a game against Trinidad, who didn't really play that well and who had their fitness reserves really dropped after the hour mark. Um, they were really there to be taken. Um, and we're talking about a Trinidad team playing, you know, a guy, uh, one of their starting central midfielders plays in the English fourth division. Um, Kevin George, who does not ever, or not, that not doesn't ever play for Columbus, but almost never plays for Columbus. That's their starting central midfield against Jones and Bradley and, Jones and Bradley couldn't really invent much. Bradley or Jones almost scored a goal, and then that was pretty much it for 90 minutes from him. He he seemed tired from like the opening 10 minutes onward. Uh, Bradley was misplacing a lot of vertical passes, which is always a problem. Um, when he's not on, a lot of the other players don't really take take care of uh, picking up the slack because it's usually the other way around. He picks up their slack, and that didn't happen this game. Um, so uh, Darlington Nagby played. That was Pleasant. Yeah, Nagby and Matt Miazga both got cap tied uh, over the, these two yep. games. Uh, both came off the bench against St. Vincent and the Grenadines. Nagby came off the bench again tonight um, and played out wide, which is where I know the three of us expected Klinsman to play him, considering that he is shown to be much better on the inside. Of course, Klinsman is going to play him out on the outside, but he actually did play centrally against St. Vincent and the Grenadines when he came on, and Klinsman switched to a 4 3 3. Uh, in that game, and it, things looked interesting. Granted, it was against St. Vincent and yes. the Grenadines. Who play a part-time fisherman as one of their starting uh, players. Right, so not exactly high competition, right. but still, Klinsman showed a thought. It Immediately, you see Bradley and Nagby kind of connecting there in the middle of the park and, and looking competent and connected, and... So you think he has that in the bag for, you know, that club in the bag to pull out against uh, Trinidad and Tobago. But instead, when he brings Nagby on, he shifts to a 4-1-3-2 that doesn't necessarily make a ton of sense with the personnel that's out there. And that's that's Klinsman. Has he ever seen a promising tactical wrinkle that he didn't immediately throw in the garbage? 
Uh, yeah, he's he's has, certainly has he, uh, some major patience problems when it comes to that. Has he ever seen a player that he didn't want to play out of position? So far, he's not played a goalkeeper out of position. Um, I don't think I don't think Michael Orozco has played positions that he can't play. <laughs> That's about it. Right back. I mean, I mean, I mean he, he's played starter, which is a position he can't play for the USMNT. That's that's a good point. That's fair. Though, though I will say he didn't look that bad tonight. Um, he was not, true. He was not the worst thing tonight. I, I was after I said the goalkeeper. After I said that goalkeeper thing, I was trying to think of a way that a goalkeeper could be played out of position, short of actually playing in the field. And I think I figured it out. Jurgen Klinsmann is going to ask Brad Guzan to play sweeper keeper with a really high line. In or, one of these games, in one of these games, Jurgen Klinsmann is going to say, "We need to be more like Germany," and so everyone, we're going to play a really high line. And Guzan, who famously loves his line, he does not leave his line for anything. Or he could just play uh, Guzan and Howard instead of Bill Hamid. He could also just keep doing that. Granted, I mean they are Premier League keepers. You can't necessarily fault him for that, even though he's wrong. And if he wants to build Hamid up and get him to a better team, it would probably be great to showcase him the way he showcases. Also, get him some Miguel get him, Aguilar. Get, get, Miguel Aguilar. Sorry, Miguel Ibarra. Get him some starts so he might be able to qualify for a work permit in countries that require a work permit. Well, he's going to have to pay play like all the games for the next couple of years for that okay. to happen. Okay. Yeah, that's that's a fair point. So, Ben, what are you taking out of these two games? Four points from two games. Not terrible. We're tied for first in the group. We, I mean, we have an easy group. We're going to get to the hex. Yes, of course. And, I mean, on its face, it's fine results. Uh, it's, we were in a similar position in the last cycle uh, at this time. Um, we, we fact, lost. lost. Yeah, we, we lost to Jamaica in the last cycle. I mean, Jamaica's better than any of these teams in this group. But... Um, and we drew with Guatemala, I think, last time around. I don't, I don't quite remember, but that sounds right. Um, but it's just, it's the way that these two games have gone, like the, especially like the first thirty minutes of the Trinidad and Tobago, of the Saint Vincent and the Grenadines game, and then going down one nothing after five minutes, not right. ideal, and not and not equalizing until late in the first half. That wasn't great. And then just this entire game where they look listless and uninterested for long stretches. It's just not the USA that we're used to seeing. They're used to they're they're normally into it. They're normally they're normally uh, passionate. Things like that. Like I mean, things that you expect the USA to be under um, Bruce Arena or Bob Bradley, and they're not anymore. And is Klinsman the first U.S. coach where the U.S. I won't say regularly, but the U.S. with some frequency is outcompeted on the field. I mean, there are better teams, of course, out there. But but even I mean, against Minnows, I mean, I feel like Bob Bradley's teams would show up. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure Jason would be better to analyze the Steve Sampson era, for example. But at least, as far as I remember, under Arena and... Uh, Bob Bradley. I mean, it's it was a it was a rare occurrence, and that was not an old joke, Jason. I'm sorry, that sounded like an old joke. But no, it's know. okay. 
it's it's uh, it's it's never good if we're bringing up the Steve Sampson era national teams um, <laughs> as a point of comparison. That's not something that should happen. Um, that was another team that had a lot of talent on paper, and players are being put in strange spots. And the um, maybe not in that case, I will say Sampson didn't spend much time actively undermining their morale. Uh, they the players themselves were undermining each other's morale. Um, but uh. You know, it, it this this is not where this this program should be. Also, and, what if we just played all of our best players in their actual best positions? Well, even I'm not even at that the point where I, that becomes I, I, my I, concern. It's it's just against a team like Trinidad who gave it a good push in in the first half, and it amounted for, for them to a couple you know decent looks that didn't amount to a dangerous or a truly dangerous shot on goal, um, and then they ran out of gas, that's a team you've got to go beat um, because maybe that happens again in qualifying and you're playing in the hex instead, and those are three points you have to take. And when the circumstances like that present themselves, you know, if, if Trinidad had played a really good 90 minutes that, that um, where they overachieved, I would have said, okay, fine, 0-0 zero, zero is, is an acceptable road result, but... Trinidad didn't actually play all that well. Um, they didn't have anything. There was no real surprise about anything they were doing. And the U.S. just sort of played down to their energy level. Um, they're just over, the overall game just seemed like a friendly, uh, an experimental friendly during a January camp rather than a World Cup qualifier, which is what it actually was. And not even a well-used experimental friendly because... Right, well, we've seen that happen under just about every coach the U.S. Yeah. has ever had. So it's something that we're kind of like, all right, fine, the January friendly turned into, you know, it was, it was right. kind of dumb, but, okay. Yeah, but I mean running out of four four two with mostly veterans. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah by the way... And we've seen entirely too much of. By, by the way, how, after all this other talk about... Um, Changing the aesthetic and all that. How do we end up with a flat four-four-two um, with, with no defined role? I mean, I will say as the game wore on and Jones got more and more tired, he it sort of turned into a diamond just because Jones wasn't running, so he would just stay in defensive midfield because that's where he was. Um, so it became a diamond, but not. It, it, maybe the bench said, "Look, Jermaine, just stop and just stand there. It's fine." But. Um, it didn't. It did look more like the team was like, oh, this. I mean, I've been on pickup teams where it's like, oh, this guy just doesn't run. Okay, we'll assume. But he wants to play midfield. He's not going to run, so he's going to take one of these two spots. He's either going to stand in front of the defense or stand underneath the forwards. Um, and that's kind of what happened there. I mean, Jamaica, uh, Trinidad and Tobago didn't really challenge um, the space uh, in front of the center backs very much. Um, they did in the first half a little bit. Jeff Cameron did an all right job of stepping up to snuff that out. Um, but in the second half, it, I, I don't know. It, it seemed like the game uh, had maybe 20 minutes of even remotely compelling content in the entire game. And I, I'm being very generous in even giving it uh, 20 minutes. What, what if we? What if instead we just played Michael Bradley as defensive midfielder and Darlington Nagby in the middle? If we have what to play, if we, if we have, defensive midfielder behind both of them and put them both in, in well, I, number if, eight roles. If we had to play a four-four-two, but we don't. That's the thing. <laughs> we definitely don't. Wait, wait, but, wait, 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 right, wait. Right. We don't have to play a four-four-two. And before this devolves into just a purely <laughs> existential 
conversation, we're going to take a quick break. Stick around. This is Filibuster, the Black and Red United podcast. Hey, Ben, you know how you're always going on and on about legal advice on this show? Well, and, yeah. And, not, and you never, ever use the term correctly? Well, of course not. I try not to use the term correctly. Right. Our new sponsors, the Ehrlich Law Office, they do use the term correctly all the time. In fact, that is what they do. Oh, so if I actually wanted legal advice, I should probably go to them? Yeah, exactly. If you're in Northern Virginia or the District of Columbia, they handle employment issues, general civil litigation, defamation, lots of stuff. Uh, They have you covered. Jason, I'm sorry, they do not have you covered because you are in Maryland where they are not operating just yet. Uh, fine. So, Ehrlich Law Office, it's, a, it's really good people. Uh, Josh is their, their main proprietor, Josh Ehrlich. Uh, he's a law school friend of mine. His, one of their, their attorneys, Ben, uh, a lot of our listeners know him from games and, and other places. So, guys, for a free consultation, go to ehrlichlawoffice.com slash filibuster. Welcome back to Filibuster, the Black and Red United podcast. Uh, since it's now DC United's off season, uh, we don't have games to talk about anymore. So we are going to do a DC United news roundup uh, because we actually have some news to talk about. Two uh, key players, I guess you could say, uh, signed contract, signed new that? contracts. What's that? Will we say that? I, I mean, I did. Okay. I said you could say that. Okay. Two guys signed new contracts with DC United this week, Nick DeLeon and Alvaro Sabarillo. Uh, Nick DeLeon, of course, has spent his entire professional career so far with DC United, uh, the Rookie of the Year finalist a few years ago, a uh, really key player in the midfield. He's the one that's not debatable, calling him a key player. Sabo, on the other hand, uh, forward traded, uh, acquired via trade from... Uh, Real Salt Lake earlier this year for Luis Silva, who apparently was not interested in re-signing with DC United. Sabo has re-signed. Uh, he was on something close to a designated player contract. Um, I think it's reasonable to expect that he took some kind of pay cut to stick around this year. Ben, what do you make of, of these moves? Um, obviously, the Nick DeLeon re-signing is right and proper. Um He's not as he's not the same player that he was in his rookie season, but he's still just as important as a player. Um, as we've pointed out, he has one of the best passing uh, completion rates on the team, uh, whereas the team in the last couple of games was around fifty percent. Uh, his season average was in the mid eighties, and so if we want to see DC United play a more passing style, he's going to have to be a key part of that. You're not going to be able to revamp the whole team and get rid of him to try and make that happen. Alvaro Saborio, on the other hand, is a little different. I really don't want to see him start for this team next year. I want to see somebody else playing that. My baseline would just be Rolf and Espindola uh, being the two starting forwards and then signing somebody else to play uh, left midfield. In if slash when Chris Pontius gets injured again, um, or doesn't return in the offseason, or do, or doesn't return in the offseason exactly, um, but 
Yeah, yeah I, I, I really don't want to see Saborio like just penciled, especially just penciled in as a starter. There needs to be somebody who can credibly challenge him for the starting role and hopefully beat him out because he's going to be what thirty four next year, thirty three or thirty four next year, and for a target man who didn't look that great down the stretch, that's not a good place to be in. Uh, just penciling him in as a starter. I mean, he did score some big goals for DC United late in the year, generally off the bench as a sub, and he looked he generally looked better as a sub than he did as a starter, and that was when Chris Pontius was was giving us a glimpse of of the 2012 Chris Pontius, and instead of the injury riddled one, of course, it ended with him being riddled by an injury. So go figure. Uh, another bit of news uh, this week, in fact, uh, yesterday. Uh, Chris Rolfe cut his hair, and this is important for our listeners because for many reasons. His yeah, for many reasons. Foremost among them, he will probably not need a headband unless he just doesn't cut his hair and it grows incredibly quickly between now and the start of the season. Um, it's not to say he won't wear one anyway, just to make us happy, which would be kind of awesome. Uh, but but Jason, can you break down the tactical implications of Chris Rolfe's haircut? No. <laughs> Good answer. I will I will point out that the last time DC had a person with very short hair who was wearing some sort of head band of some kind was Abdul Thompson Conte, um, who promised who went on the radio and promised like twenty goals and scored four. Um so that's not great. That's Are we not a, counting a concussion helmets? Because uh, yeah, Daniel... I mean like I mean, I mean, things you're wearing by choice that are unnecessary for you to actually play. Um, Conte liked to wear a um, a white headband most of the time um, back in the day, um, and it just it did not end up going that well. But this was these were dark times for United. This was a bad era. This was the 2001, 2002 kind of range. Um, Rolf probably is going to score more than four goals. I'm gonna <laughs> gonna go out on a limb and, and assume that that happens. So I'm not actually worried, but I I did it did click in my head that that was the last time we had a person with very short hair. And judging from the photo, it is pretty much down to the scalp. Um, there no, just I mean, wasn't it's not like a nineties style. A lot left. It's not a nineties two thousand style buzz cut or anything. It's got I, some I only style saw to the, it. I only saw the picture of hair on the ground, so I just assumed it was just about all of it. it oh, is, no, look, I mean, it, it was pretty long. Right. It looks like a regular person haircut now. It's not It's not high and tight or anything. Okay. Or like that regular person so he haircut could, he could is the thing the guy from Richmond says. That makes perfect sense. I, I mean, yeah, he, he could get out to his hair looking like flared jeans again before the start of next season. All right. Let, let's... That would be fast. That would be a Ben Olsen level of hair growth. That would be impressive. Not really. No, no one's at that level. That's. I think Olsen actually can choose. Just he just tells himself, "I would like to have this much hair grow," and it just does. Yeah. For the rest of it, it's involuntary. For Ben Olsen, it's a conscious choice how yes. much hair to have at any given moment. Uh, off the field. Uh, down in Buzzard Point, the District of Columbia and Pepco, our, our local utility, uh, closed on a deal to for a, a land swap with some cash uh, to move Pepco off of 
buzzard point, uh, or at least move for the DC government to acquire their land on the stadium footprint, uh, and to give Pepco some land actually pretty close to, to my house, uh, at first and K Northwest, uh, to build a substation near a couple of really quickly growing neighborhoods, uh, with, with lots of density being added. So that, that was going to happen about $24 million, I think is what Pepco netted on the sale. All, all of which immediately went back to the government as part of a, a sponsorship deal where they're going to get the naming rights not to the soccer stadium, but to a street and or park or something, plaza maybe, near the stadium. So interesting to Mayhap, see that, that confluence. But Mayhaps a promenade? Uh, the, the Pepco promenade? That would be... I would, I would enjoy it. When the lights are on, yes. Ah. Uh, anyway, the District of Columbia now officially owns, not just has the right to own, but owns all the land on the site. This is more a procedural thing because they were already doing the site cleanup, is, is my understanding, and they are already acting as if they were the owners of the site. But now it's official, and they have till September 1st of 2016 to turn the site over to DC United so that... Uh, Jason Levian and Eric Tohir and 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 Will Chang can can start spending their own money building a stadium and it's going to be great. Speaking of Eric Tohir and Jason Levian, they are into the NBA apparently. They are part of a group buying a minority stake in the Minnesota Timberwolves. That's a thing that's happening. Ben, any any thoughts on on DC United's managing partners? getting back into the basketball business? No, not really. It doesn't really mean anything for D.C. United. They've always been interested in basketball. Uh, Levian has had a number of different jobs in the NBA and usually been fired from them. And uh, Tohir has and, – and own, he owns, I think, two teams in Indonesia. He has been the president of the Indonesian Basketball League. I think he's the president of the Southeast Asian Basketball Federation right now. He's always been a big basketball guy. And, yeah, it's not going to have any effect on the amount of money they spend on D.C. United because they're not spending that much anyways, and they're not going to spend any less because of basketball. So, yeah, that's that. And they're, they're buying they're, – in theory, they're buying 20% – with a guy who's also a billionaire, so they're really not even going to be putting out that much money in ownership amount of money. Right, and they're not the only two members of this group. Uh, Jason Levian apparently um, not putting in a ton of capital. He's he, do, he doesn't, he doesn't the, have any money. I mean, he's got a lot more than you or I do. Well, yeah, but on an but like on an owning a team level amount has, of money, he doesn't have. I that bet he has money. more money than all three of us put together. Oh, I'm and, sure he does that. <laughs> but, we're, but we're regular people in like the world of the one percent sports teams owners. He is a poor person. <laughs> this episode, this segment has turned into all about normal people by Ben Bromley. <laughs> yeah. Haircuts, money. What What's next, Ben? What's the next topic? Cats. No, cats are not a normal people thing. Sorry, cats are a cat people thing. I think you're offending a large segment of our listenership. Well, they can send their hate mail to filibusterpodcast at gmail.com. Or to the underscore AMT on Twitter. That also works. 
that's it for the news roundup. Let's look now to the playoffs. Uh, they get back underway after uh, the international break, which NASL did not honor for, for their championship game. And one of the teams in the championship was missing uh, their one and only international player. Very important guy for them. So that's hilarious. Anyway, uh, unnecessary digs at NASL notwithstanding. MLS resumes their playoffs Sunday with the conference finals. First legs uh, will get started at 5 p.m. with the Columbus Crew versus New York Red Bulls. That'll be on ESPN. This is actually kind of an interesting matchup, I think. Um, you have two teams that are are known for possession and, you know, kind of playing an aesthetic brand of soccer, but they do it in different ways. New York likes to press, press, press in the opponent's half, whereas Columbus is happy to to sit back and let you come at them, and then they'll take the ball and they'll go at you. They want to trade haymakers. It almost it almost seems like. Jason, uh, what do you make of of this matchup, and will the entire thing be played in Columbus's half of the field because of that dynamic? Uh, it it may, uh, especially given the the sort of cagey nature that we've seen uh, across MLS in first legs. Teams uh, have gone even even teams like the Red Bulls that have been front foot teams have been a little more willing to be pragmatic. I mean, granted. Part of the reason they were not necessarily pressing so much at RFK is because the ball was just being kicked high and far um, repeatedly. So there was just nothing to press. Um, I think Columbus it has a real problem on their hands because Gaston Sorrow is suspended due to yellow card accumulation. Um, they really became a better team once he joined. Um, he gave them a physical element that they've lacked in defense all year long. Um, that's, I mean, he was actually the second person they went out for that role. They also brought Emmanuel Pogatetz in, and he just turned out to not be very good. Um, so with Sauro out, they don't have a replacement. They'll put in Tyson Wall, but Wall is more of Michael Parkhurst's understudy than he is a, a good complement for Parkhurst. Um, the Red Bulls don't really have the bruiser of a forward that, that would be the obvious choice to, to make them pay for that, but... Um, Bradley Wright Phillips has proven that he can score plenty of goals, but with his movement, um, uh, rather than by knocking people aside. Um, but I do, I, I really wonder, um, if Columbus is up to the job. And I think it's funny because this game, I feel like it's either going to be a very cautious game where Columbus just keeps the ball, keeps the ball and, and risks very little, or it's going to be a game in which, and maybe the game changes if the Red Bulls score early, um, that, it gets really, really end-to-end because Columbus's whole problem this season hasn't been scoring goals. They score a ton of goals. So does New York. Um, and if the crew find themselves giving up an, a road goal, they're going to have to pad their lead. They're probably going to have – if they give up one, they probably realistically need to get to three on their end. Um, so this is one of those games where uh, the first goal is going to dictate even more than normal how things go. Um, I think the crew – without Sauro are probably going to prefer to just possess and slow the game down um, because they're capable of taking the Red Bulls out of their pressure without resorting to long balls. In fact, it doesn't really make any sense for them to play a long ball. Um, So they can knock the ball around and just see if they can defuse the Red Bulls that way. Um, But if New York happens to catch a goal early, then this game could get, could get very, very exciting very quickly. Um, so I guess as neutrals, we should 
on one hand, be hoping for that outcome, but on the other hand, uh, I mean, Columbus winning five nothing at home happened recently, and uh, that would it doesn't feel like recently, but it was recent. Um, that actually would be hilarious and awesome, and I hope that happens. But without without Sauro and against the Red Bulls team that seems on top of the world right now, um, I think if you asked Greg Berhalter if he would be happy with one nothing in a very low risk game, he would probably be quite happy. He'd probably conceal it. He'd probably be like, oh, well, you know, but he, you would be able to tell that he was very delighted with that outcome, I think. So it, if and when Columbus gets the ball into the Red Bulls half, they're going to be looking for Kai Kamara's head, now made famous by, by Sports Science on ESPN. How do the Red Bulls deal with that service? I mean, other than pressing the crew high up the field and try to prevent the service from ever developing without without um, Damian Parnell in there to kind of run their defense and, and help them build out of the back. Um, how do they combat Kamara's aerial presence? Uh, they do. They have a problem on their hands. Uh, Matt Miazga isn't, he's, he's got the size and the reputation of winning a lot of aerials. Um, but not all headers are created equal, and we saw Miazga pushed aside several times. Um, He's very John Brooks in that department. Yeah, um, I, I I do think he he's better about his awareness uh, of what's about to happen, but he's he just has tr- trouble once contact is happening to him rather than him initiating contact. Um, he does win plenty, but a lot of times they're unchallenged. He, or it's when he's already won the header before the ball even arrives, basically, where he's just jumping up and heading the ball. Um, Kamara doesn't really let you get away with that because he's also fast, and he can jump. He doesn't just jump up high. He jumps far. Um, he covers a lot of ground in the air. Um, he can attack headers. He's, he's much better now than he was before he left for England at that. He, he tends to let the defender sort of drift those last two steps towards where the ball is going to go, and he'll, he'll let the guy go, and then he'll attack the space that the ball is coming to rather than getting there and then trying to jump straight up. Um, and that has, that's been a big factor on why he scores so often. Um, Ronald Zubar, I think, doesn't have the mobility to deal with Kamara. Um, so I think, I think the Red Bulls are going to realize that if it's just left to the center backs to deal with Kamara, they're going to probably bleed goals. So, I think they're just going to try and force the wingers and the and the fullbacks for Columbus into having to stay deeper, um, and that means, you know, a, a lot of it is going to come from New York's own fullbacks with um, Salzizo, who is a converted winger. Um, he did a very good job of pushing up high uh, against DC, so that uh, no one no one playing left midfield, no matter who it was at any given time could get up and help support the forwards, and which is why the long ball strategy ended up working so poorly. Uh, there's just no one there. to Even if Sabario won every header, there was just no one in place to do anything with it. Um, Kamar Lawrence uh, is tireless and high energy, and he always seems to be upfield. So um, it's, it's an interesting battle because Columbus likes to spread you out. New York tends to be a little more compact because you have to be. If you're going to high press, you all have to press as a group. Um I think that's where the game might be won or lost for both teams is if Columbus can spread things out and make New York defend sideline to sideline, um, they're going to find chances to put in crosses because 
Zizo isn't the, going to be the best defender. If, if Justin Merriman is lining up one-on-one against Sal Zizo, I've got to expect a shot on goal at that point. Like before, before he makes his move, I'm already thinking, all right, there's going to be a shot on goal right now. Um, on the other side, Lawrence can be – he won't be Finley, – Ethan Finley won't be able to beat him for speed, but he, he does have a little more soccer IQ than Lawrence, in my opinion. He's going to be able to find some openings where his speed is enough to get away from Lawrence and put the ball into a dangerous area. Um, and if, if they're able to do that regularly, then you know, Kai Kamara, he's probably going to have a very good game. Um, New York really needs their wingers to do something with the, about the fullbacks for Columbus. We saw um, in the season-closing game what Harrison Offal can do at right back. Um, he really caused D.C. endless amount of trouble, and Lloyd Sam is not really known. He's not lazy by any means. He's just not known for his defensive intensity. He doesn't really contribute a lot. Um, on the defensive side of the ball. He's not a guy that racks up tackles and recoveries and all that stuff. Um, Mike Grella is still a converted forward uh, playing on the left wing. So um, Columbus Columbus may create a game plan based on getting their fullbacks the ball even more than normal, which they already give their fullbacks a ton of the ball. It might be uh, it might become a little comical. They might be racking up the kind of pass numbers you see for a central midfielder by the end of this thing. Um, but it's, it's all going to be designed to get Kamara – crosses to feed him the crosses that that he should be able to put away against New York. Um, New York also has an issue with um, Luis Robles not being necessarily the greatest at coming off his line to claim crosses, um, which I'm just thinking of now is also a a big problem for them because if the crosses are any good, Kamara's winning the ball against those center backs and against Robles. So New York's the game for New York is really to keep the ball out of the box altogether because once it's crossed in there, they're going to have some problems. Wait, Jason, I was told that Luis Robles should be on the U.S. men's national team. I think you've been spending too much time in northern New Jersey um, because everyone else in the rest of the country knows otherwise. Indeed. So I, the offensive kind of mismatch looks like it applies no matter who has the ball. Uh, both these teams, even though they're they're both very good teams, their their strength is definitely in their attack. How does the crew defense handle New York's midfield, uh, both their pressure, their ability to win the ball high up the field, which they will from time to time, even against a team as good with the ball as the crew. Uh, and then Lloyd Sam and, and Grella coming in on the wings. Uh, it's going to be interesting because they play better when Federico Iguain pushes up almost. I want to point out, the first time we mentioned Federico Iguain is talking about the crew when they're on defense. Yes, that's how, that's how strong the crew attack is. Um, that he becomes almost, you know, I mean, granted, he's more effective than Justin Merrim, um, but in any case, um, with him pushing so high, uh, their central midfield is is sometimes going to be outnumbered because he sometimes functions as a second forward rather than as an attacking midfielder, um, and that's an that is an issue. And the fact that New York has Sasha Question who can play physically. And he'll physically match up very – it's a very favorable matchup between him and Will Trapp. Um, if Trapp is staying deep to occupy the space um, in front of the center backs, Question is going to have the physical advantage there. We know Question loves to rove around a little bit, um, not necessarily like he's wandering looking for seams, but rather he just wants to connect as many passes as he can, um, keep the defense moving around with his legs as much as by circulating the ball. Um, Trapp – won't be able to chase him around everywhere. That that job is probably going to be given to Tony Chani, um, but that kind of opens up 
uh, some issues for the crew because if you have Chani dealing with Sasa, Sasa question, um, Felipe and Dax McCarty are going to have more space. They're going to have less um, less of a physical presence to deal with. Iguain will will put in about as much effort as you can expect from a true number 10, but that means it's not that much effort defensively. Um, so New York may may end up looking to try and draw Chani forward uh, towards – or not forward, um, toward, closer to their defense. So he'll be dropping back to help with question, and New York may actually want that to happen because that means McCarty and Felipe will have more time um, – a lot less space uh, clogging that normally we see when two, four, five, one teams play each other. Um, those guys might have more time on the ball than we normally see. And and um, Felipe has been kind of quiet in the playoffs. I mean, he's he, granted they've only played the two games, and they, it was a long ball game. It's not really his style. Um, but we've seen him in the past score and get assists at a high rate. Um, and Columbus, I think, might be in a little danger with him because – if Chani has to deal with question and Trap is sort of staying in his general deep playmaker area, um, all of a sudden those two, Felipe and McCarty, are going to have the space to make things happen. And um, McCarty, we've seen him score a goal, obviously, and you know he's not that bad in the run of play because he doesn't stay home like in traditional holding midfielder. We think of you know Kyle Beckerman being very positionally disciplined. McCarty has this thing where he likes to peel out to the right um, when the ball's when when the ball's in play. Um, question will drop into his space if he needs to. Um, there there's certain a certain mobility about New York's midfield that might cause Columbus some trouble because I think they'd prefer to keep that central triangle very structured, and New York doesn't allow that because Question moves around so much because McCarty can can move out because Felipe could play could step up as a ten. Um, at any given moment. Not that that happens very much, but it's always there, and teams have to sort of respect that. So um, that might, you know, as much as the crew might have an advantage on the flanks, New York might have an advantage in the middle, and that goes back to is this game spread out or is this game compact? Because if it's spread out, um, the crew won't have, and especially if the ball's on the flanks and it's spread out, the crew aren't really going to have to deal with the central midfield issue that much. But if the game is played in a small footprint, New York's central midfield probably should be able to give them control over how the game is being played elsewhere because with their mobility, I just I see the crew having trouble dealing with it because Chani's going to have to step back and help trap out with with Sasha Question. All right, this one is at five o'clock Sunday on ESPN. It'll be the first dish, the second course. Uh, I don't know why I'm using tired food analogies for this. I apologize to all of our listeners and to both of you, my co-host. Uh, the the nightcap will be the Portland Timbers against FC Dallas, 7.30 on Fox Sports 1. Uh, another good matchup for fans of attacking soccer, though Caleb Porter um, held it pretty late making that switch. Uh, it wasn't until maybe three or four weeks to go in the season before he, he moved out of this bunkering kind of uh, 4-4-2-ish system uh, to the 4-3-3 and just open the doors to to let everyone attack all the time. And it's it's paid serious dividends for him. When you have guys like Diego Valeri and, and Darlington Nagby in the middle, that can happen sometimes. Um, assuming Darlington Nagby doesn't come back with a muscle injury from U.S. National Team camp, which is never, yep. ever a safe assumption under your... 
you got to get in shape. Surely he's not sh- he's not in good shape after a full season. You have to get him in shape now. Uh, assuming that doesn't happen, do you think Porter sticks with the four three three, or does he he go to some kind of four two three one? Does he find a way to get Will Johnson on the field to to try to deal with Mauro Diaz in in the Dallas attack? No, I, I think Porter learned the uh, the lesson that. His um, pragmatic, the pragmatic version of his team, it wasn't going to get it done. Um, and when he decided to go full attack and just go all in on the the idea that his skill players w- would would make this work, um, that really it panned out. And there's no good justification for Portland to to switch it up. Um, and on top of that, uh, well, actually, and now that I think about it, Valeria is suspended as well. Him and Rodney Wallace. Um, oh wow! So this I might actually be that, yeah. they both they both picked up two yellow cards in the the first round. So um, now that I'm looking at that, that actually sort of forces Porter out of the four three three, or at least the super attacking uh, all guns blazing four three three that he was able to field before. They don't have a Valeria replacement. Um, so Will, Will Johnson might get into this game, um, but I still think it'll be out of a four three three. Lucas Milano will come in for Rodney Wallace. Um, Johnson, maybe um, George Fashive, uh possibly as well comes in in the the, the center of midfield. Um, depending on jo- Johnson, only recently got back to playing as a starter. Um, he had a complication from his uh, broken leg surgery that he played through for a while, and then they decided to get the surgery. I think he just played Canada's first qualifier, and it was the first start he'd had in quite a while. Um, so the good good question though. there is. It was a good win for them, um, which is a rare thing to say for the Canadian national team over recent years because they've just sort of tortured their fans. Um, but uh, if he's able to bounce back um, and play after playing, I, I assume he's on the field right now for Canada. I'm not watching that game because I'm in a different room. Um, but if, if he's able to bounce back from qualifying, he is the most logical choice to replace Valeri. Um I think I think it does put Portland in kind of a bad spot though because they won't be able to go back to the all-in attacking strategy. Um, Milano, the rumor was that uh, he was having trouble adjusting to the travel and the different surfaces, um, which is partially why Wallace became the choice, and and partially because Wallace does a little more defensively. Milano is playing on the left, but was initially billed as a another striker. Um, whereas Wallace is purely going to be a left-sided player and, and has played some left-back before as well and left midfield, so you're getting, you're getting a lot of work rate there. Um, his speed also would have helped against FC Dallas because FC Dallas is extremely fast. Um, so it, it's not a good time to have your last home game, potentially your last home game. Actually, point-wise, I, I don't think there's a way Portland could play another home Correct. game no matter what happens. This is their last home so, game of 2015. No matter right, and... and they're going to have to do it with a flawed version of the lineup that got them to this point. Well, um, to a certain extent, Portland just doesn't score at home anyway at these days. Even with the attacking 4-3-3, they're much, for whatever reason, they have a tendency to score and, and win more on the road than at home, even against Vancouver in the last round of the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Scoreless draw at home, 2 to nothing win on the road. Is that the template? I mean, I, it almost has to be the template against Dallas with Rodney well, Wallace and, and Diego Valeri suspended. Well, but the, the problem they'll run into there is that Dallas is going to sit deep and play on the counter. And Dallas is an excellent counterattacking team. 
um, that can really make you pay. If you can't break them down and break them open, you're going to have real problems because with Fabian Castillo, with Moro Diaz breaking through, um, if you start throwing numbers forward and you're not prepared to deal with their counterattacking, and we're talking about a Portland team that's got net porchers at center back. Um, Alvis Powell has plenty of speed to help out uh, against Castillo, but um, Oscar Pereja has been very smart about moving players around. We've seen uh, Castillo actually spent some of the uh, previous series, the overtime period, he actually spent that as a lone striker. They were just trying to free him up and get something going, and they pushed him up front. Tesho Akindeli played as a winger. Um, so if Pereja says, okay, fine, the one player that Portland has that can keep up with Castillo is Alvis Powell, then he's just going to switch him and Michael Barrios, or they'll do something else they did against Seattle, which is just feed Barrios the ball over and over and over again. Um, Seattle was having real problems at left back, and Dallas just decided they were going to go all in on that strategy, and that was it. Um, so Portland's, Portland's in a really bad position, in my opinion, with those suspensions, um, with the fact that they're not that great at home, and the fact that if they can't, make that their home field advantage count if they can't turn their possession into chances the one tur- you know they're against Dallas are always one turnover away from conceding a goal um i mean all right fine against anyone you're like that but against Dallas it really comes through it re- you really feel that the next bad pass could be a goal against um and Dallas i think i think Dallas is going to be fully aware of that um and we might see something where Porter tries to use, like Columbus might try and do, um, they just try and pile up the possession in an effort to just make sure that Dallas isn't hitting them on the break. Um, and, and it may come through that they're trying to re- repeat the trick, as Adam, as you as you hinted at, but it's a difficult proposition because if you make one mistake against Dallas, um, you've, got, you've got real problems on your hand. Um, now, I will say that, uh, who is it from Dallas? Like, wasn't somebody injured? Um, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. Um, Zach Lloyd um, was pulled for Walker Zimmerman, who ended up scoring a goal and then scoring the winning penalty kick and then looking completely angry about what had happened. Um, it was yeah. a very Balotelli kind of game-winning yes. PK celebration. Um, and, and the thing is, uh, kind of an inappropriate celebration, and it's one of the only times I'm ever going to say this because um, Jesse <laughs> Gonzalez had saved two penalty kicks uh, out of four, and in that situation, you don't you don't get to celebrate when you make your winning penalty kick. You go to the goalkeeper because he's the hero. You're just a guy who did his job at that point. He's the hero. Um, Zimmerman didn't maybe didn't really realize that, but I, I guess as a center back, getting to put the ball in the back of the net twice in one game, you kind of lose your head a little. This was um, his this was his prima donna forward moment. He'll right, never you, get you another only, one. He'll you never only get, get so another many one. Moments. Um, he probably won't ever get to do that again. Um, um, but it, I, I kind of like Dallas's chances to get get themselves a road win in this one um, because Portland's missing Valeri. They might have a, they might have a ton of possession, but I wonder if they're going to have the inventiveness to actually turn that into something um, without him in the midfield and without really anyone remotely close to filling that role. Um, as much as we talk about Nagby moving into the middle and making things much better, he's a facilitator. He's not a playmaker. Um, he's the guy that, that creates these circumstances that allows someone like Valeri to really thrive. Um, and when you thrust him into the – you have to take Valeri's job and someone else has to facilitate, things are going to break down because they don't have another Nagby and Nagby's not another Valeri. So and and I can I just say this is Dallas a point that goes 
that we are going to have to make over and over again in the future regarding the U.S. men's national team. <laughs> yeah. Nagby is not the number 10 who will save us. No. Gideon Zalalem is not the number 10 who will save us. Neither of them is a number 10 at all, let alone the number 10 who can save us. So I just felt the need to make that point in advance because it's going to come up. It is going to come up a lot because people are going to say, well, I heard Nagby was such a good attacking player. He's um, really technical. Right. He. Um, I think... I think I saw something that Caleb Porter said that you could um, you could dump Nagby into a Barcelona training session and he would look he would look right at home in their keep away game and whatnot and he probably would um, but keep away isn't the same as soccer and people that want Nagby to be uh, a goal scoring uh, dynamo that can't be stopped and is constantly racking up goals and assists every week are going to be disappointed but it's because they're looking to him to do the wrong, they're looking for him to produce things that he's not going to produce. But players playing near him are going to produce those things. Maybe not in this game though, because without Valeri, you're asking Will Johnson to play as a playmaker. That's not going to happen. Um, they're not going to start Michael Nanshoff, who might actually be the closest thing to Valeri that they've got in terms of profile uh, of player, but not in terms of ability at all. So. I think Portland's in a really difficult position here because I don't think Dallas is going to lose at home, and I think Dallas is probably going to catch them with one or two counters. So uh, I kind of like Dallas to go on the MLS Cup. I'm less sure about the other game, though. Also, I just want uh, FC Dallas to make it to MLS Cup so they can somehow repay us or make amends for the abomination that was the 2010 MLS Cup. That's fair. That plays. Uh that's it for us this week, unless Ben has any news on Jurgen Klinsmann being fired. Since, Unfor- since unfortunate, unfortunately, no. In that case, let's call it a show. Find us at blackandredunited.com. We're on Twitter at filibusterdcu for the webs- or for the podcast at blackandredu for the website. Plus, we all have personal accounts that are pretty easy to find if you really want to. Uh, send your emails to filibusterpodcast at gmail.com. Find us on iTunes. Find us on Stitcher. We are on SoundCloud, but mostly just tell a friend about us. When you're at a bar watching the playoffs, I guess there's not any DC United games to watch. So when you find yourself talking about DC United, tell a friend about the show. We'd really appreciate it. For Jason and Ben, I'm Adam. We'll talk to you real soon. Say goodbye, Jason. Goodbye, Jason. Try